The Guardian. Hello and welcome to Media Talk. On this week's show, it's merger madness as Disney buys Lucasfilm, Random House gets into bed with Penguin, and former Mirror boss David Montgomery returns with a new local newspaper business, Local World. Also this week... Good afternoon, everybody, on the very final show up here in the treehouse. Uh, they've cancelled us for financial reasons. Dan, you know, oh. I was thinking about this. Aren't you also um, DJ of the year in, in perpetuity? perpetuity. This is not about me. Danny Baker's afternoon show on BBC London is axed, the Daily Telegraph puts up a paywall, and the Savile spotlight falls on Mark Thompson ahead of his switch to the New York Times. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. I'm joined for the first part of the show by Media Guardian's Josh Halliday and all-round media consultant Neil Henderson. Thank you both. There's a determination amongst even people who work in this office to drive one of the greatest capital cities on the entire planet and that the world has ever known down to the communication level of Radio Beckles. We start this week with the news that Danny Baker has lost his afternoon show on BBC London. There was some speculation last year that Baker might go as part of BBC London's 16% budget cuts that it faces. These are cuts, of course, that are being implemented across BBC local radio. Some stations suffering more than others. Neil, what did you make of this? Well, I mean, I know the editor of BBC London really well, David Roby, and David it would have been probably one of the most painful decisions ever for him because he loves Danny. They're, they're very close. He's worked with Danny for, for, for many years. And it's just the, the mere fact that they have to cut across the board and it impacts BBC London uh, as well as Radio Shropshire, you know, who are turning off the AM frequency because it's too uh, expensive. Um, you know, Danny does a, a fantastic show. He's hilarious on Twitter as prod knows. But I just think that, you know, when you've got big salaries on a on a station like BBC London, then something has to give. And I'm sure that David Roby did some uh, long and hard thinking about it. Josh, there's been quite a response to this on Twitter. Predictably, there's outrage on the Twitter sphere. Yeah, Stephen Fry weighed in, um, Rob Brydon, Lauren Laverne. I mean, so George Entwistle could soon have a sort of six music scenario on his hands where he's backed into a corner and forced to, you know, take the executive decision on this one. Indications from BBC London, Neil, were that, you know, it's not about the money. It was an editorial decision. But um, is that sort of face-saving on their part, do you think? Or if it was an editorial decision, then why would you lose someone, you know, like Danny Baker, who's won numerous Sony Gold Awards and is, you know, probably one of the be- one of the BBC's best-known, you know, speech presenters? Well, I think as a, as a PR man and an ex-journalist, you have to minimise the impact when you make a statement like that. And you don't want to say to listeners that it's all about the money. And I think that David would have gone through a very difficult chat. I think he would have faced up to Danny and told him, you know, that his hands were tied in, in, in some respects. And I think Danny will, will respect that largely once he gets over the shock. You know, he's been through a difficult couple of years and, um, you know, he will bounce back somewhere else. And even Stephen Fry, Josh, apparently has entered the debate. Is that right? That's right. I mean, Stephen Fry seems to have leapt to Danny Baker's defence in a way because Danny's been saying on Twitter that actually he's not in any sort of negotiations with London about carrying on any sort of programme. But he's just got his Five Live programme left. And it seems to be an odd time given you know the plaudits that Danny's received recently. And I think he's in, he's in the radio hall of uh, Radio Academy. Is it, what, is it sorry, radio? He's going to be induced or inducted. Is that inducted the right word into, into the... the yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, it's a strange time for the decision to come out. I'm sure the BBC didn't want it out now. They would have preferred to do it in their own controlled way. But you can't do that these days, can you? The Twitter and uh, personalities being completely in control of their own um, personal management. 
I imagine you'll end up on somewhere like Radio 2 because I know that Bob Shannon's a, a big fan of, of Danny's and Danny loves playing obscure music, so I'm sure he would fit in really well there. And as you suggested earlier, Neil, this is a sign of things to come at BBC Local Radio. They've all got to implement big cuts. Uh, there'll be a lot of instances like this, not not just on BBC London, but you know, a, a, across the country. Yeah, and if you look at the way that BBC Local Radio is going, if you look at the way that commercial radio is going, it's not a great time for listeners because you know, in times of crisis like floods in places like Shropshire, you're going to lose that strong link when a lot of your daytime programming, nighttime programming is networked. And, you know, in, in BBC Local Radio, they might network across the whole of the north, so you will miss that absolute local uh, connection. Also this week, The Telegraph has announced details of its long-awaited paywall. Overseas readers will have to pay £1.99 a month to visit, but they will get the first 20 page views for free. Josh, tell us about this. This has been a, a, a long time in the coming. It felt like it might never happen, actually. We were talking about it in the office this week, thinking what has actually happened to this long-awaited paywall. You know, several key executives have left in the past few months alone. Will Lewis, who really was the brainchild of Project Houston, as it was called in November 2010, he, he's completely down the other end of the scale now at News Corp. And what The Telegraph has announced today is 23 articles for its international users, and then it will ask them to pay £1.99 a month, which is a really, really light-touch paywall. It's, it's lighter than the New York Times, which is most people don't even confront on a, on a daily basis or even a monthly basis. So it's an interesting model. It remains to be seen whether it will work. The Telegraph has a lot of international readers. It says two, two-thirds of its online audiences overseas. That's a substantial amount. And if it can convert you know, two-thirds of them into pain, then it will be an interesting project for them. And actually, I wonder how David Cameron will be feeling about this today, that he won't be able to get his Tory propaganda out to those people that, that fund the Conservative Party in offshore um, havens like you know, Spain, Switzerland. Uh, no, Surely I, they can afford a <laughs> 199 a month. In, in, yeah. <laughs> from a serious point of view, I mean, if you look how successful the Daily Mail is free abroad, and of course the Guardian abroad, I think that this is a big mistake uh, for the Telegraph. People are a bit sick of paywalls. I mean, I pay for the Times, but I'm going to stop that soon. Um, and I, I think if it's been free for a long time, then just bring it, in, bring it in now, you know, two or three years after the Times and News International did it. I think it's a waste of time. So you're saying too little, too late? Yeah, absolutely. As, as my modern studies teacher told me at school of circa 1987. <laughs> but it sounds like, Josh, it's really kind of dipping its toe and sort of experimenting here. But I mean... Is this a precursor? Will we see something similar in the, in the UK? Is that on the cards? The Telegraph made quite clear today that it has no current plans to expand this to the UK. But no doubt if it's a success, then it will consider charging for things online uh, on its website in the UK. Why wouldn't it? I mean, £1.99 is not a lot of money for a month for a user to stump up. And it has, you know, it's the third most popular national newspaper website in the UK. So there's, there's a big audience there. Whether they will be willing to pay that with so much free competition... Who knows? But, I mean, it's worth it's worth trying, isn't it? Neil, do you think this... I mean, you're not a fan of it, but do you think this is a, a sign of things to come? And this is the, the movement of direction, the movement of travel among UK newspapers now? Yeah, I mean, if, if UK newspapers look to their counterparts in television, you know, everything is, is, is paid for in, in, in pay TV. But you have to provide that premium content, which the Times can do. I don't think the Telegraph is doing that at the moment. And, you know, if, if you can read the Daily Mail or The Guardian for free abroad or the BBC website for example why would you look at the the telegraph well this uh, comes at an interesting time because it coincides with a report that was out this week uh, that says we're going to be spending a lot more money to see news content online 
The report by a research firm called Forrester said that spending on digital news would uh, increase to almost £250 million by 2017 and that the online paid content market would grow 65% to £8 billion a year. Uh, but the flip side of this was that the amount of spending on traditional advertising would, uh, well, go down the pan, if I can use a, a phrase not used by research firm Forrester. I mean, Josh, there's the challenge there, isn't it? We might be spending more on uh, smartphone apps, but uh, as far as traditional advertising goes, you know, it's, it's, it's only going in one direction. It was an interesting report by Forrester because they said for the first time consumers are now aware that they don't own things that they pay for or read or watch or listen to online they rent it and so when they're reading newspaper websites it's not their content because they haven't picked it up off a newsstand they're not taking it home they don't read it on the train they, it's a quick hit you know it's commodity but if they can pay for that then it's worth trying for Forrester have been trying to get newspapers to experiment with digital subscription models since 2009 and it's also an interesting time because it's a week before the US presidential election and if the Telegraph is starting to charge international readers for access to its site, then surely that's going to minimise the impact of some of its presidential coverage. Next up, former BBC Director General Mark Thompson faced further questions this week about what he knew, or rather didn't know, about the Jimmy Savile saga while he was still at the BBC. You'll remember he was still DG when Newsnight drops its investigation into Savile, just at the same time as BBC One was planning a glowing tribute to the since-disgraced presenter. Now, staff at his new employer, the New York Times, have pulled no punches. In particular, one journalist who wrote in a column this week that he appeared willfully ignorant about the whole thing. Neil, uh, it turns out that the BBC isn't the only organisation that puts itself under the microscope in public. Well, my issue with this is Mark Thompson is effectively was effectively the chief executive of a multinational company with 30-odd thousand staff. Is it his responsibility to know every programme that's been moved or every news piece that's been changed? I mean, there's probably some news people within BBC News who didn't know that that programme on Newsnight uh, or that piece had been had been changed. I think it's, it's, it's unfortunate that he didn't know about it, but he was only drafted into the Ross brand issue when he was uh, pulled back from holiday when it was actually happening. You know, he can't sit in New York and, and look back and uh, every programme that has been cut by the BBC or every news piece, or he would drive him mad. He, you know, he wouldn't have enough hours in the day. I think George Entwistle is probably more culpable because he was head of television and he is certainly was more in line with what Helen Bowden's decisions were. But it is unusual that someone goes to another company, like the New York Times, for example, and gets such heavy criticism from the the columnists and journalists at the paper, which I think is commendable to, to, to them to have a go at their boss. You wouldn't see that in, in the newspapers here for Murdoch or the McLennan, Mr. McLennan, for example. So it's going to be a difficult time for him, and the American media is very, very much different in the, in the way that they treat the, the senior execs compared to here. Well, as Roy Greenslade noted, there were there were five supportive comments of, of Thompson under the uh, New York Times column in question, but more than 80 said that he shouldn't take the role. J- Josh, do you think it's feasible that he, that he won't actually become chief exec? Well, it's going to be ridiculously hard for him. I mean, he will have never started a job under these circumstances before in his entire life. He's been meeting with executives in New York apparently for the past fortnight. A lot of those discussions will have been more like inquisitions, no doubt, and the executive editor last week 
appear to be trying to distance the New York Times from Thompson before he'd even stepped in the door, uh, reminding staff to d- describe him as incoming chief executive, just in case he never made it. Um, but Thompson is made of quite strong stuff. You know, he's, he's calm under pressure. He's very political. He can have these discussions without appearing to be flapping and, and, and flailing. And, you know, he's got some plausible explanations. And I think the questions more lie with George Entwistle and, and Helen Bowden and his executives in London. So I think that takes, him, takes the heat off him slightly. And on a lighter note this week, Disney splashed the cash to buy Lucasfilms, the George Lucas's company, which is behind Star Wars, of course. There was a slightly sad picture of uh, George Lucas holding up a lightsaber alongside various Disney characters like Mickey Mouse, who are all dressed up as characters from Star Wars. Looked like he was going to burst into tears, but in fact, he's laughing all the way to the bank because the deal is worth a cool $4 billion, or £2.5 billion. Neil, there's no doubt it's a good deal for George Lucas, but is it a good deal for Disney? And uh, most importantly, of course, is it a good deal for Star Wars fans? It's not a good deal for Darth Vader, because, you know, they, they'll have Winnie the Pooh doing his... <sighs> <sighs> but the, the, the thing is... honey. They, yeah, they, they're buying the back catalogue. That's the most important thing, and the huge value that that, that brings. I think the Star Wars um, franchise is kind of somewhat eroded now. I mean, they're talking about bringing out films every two or three years. You know, it, it ain't James Bond. They will want those films to, to outperform in every box office. Uh, there's no room for, for failure, and obviously Star Wars hasn't failed. But I think if they water down the production quality of those films like Disney might do, then that's when you'll start to see the cracks appearing. And uh, well, famously, the second trilogy, which he was responsible for more recently, didn't quite live up to the uh, didn't quite live up to the first, if I can sort of put it mildly. But uh, Josh, I was going to ask you if you watched Star Wars first time round, but I, I I fear the answer. You, you fear correct? Yeah, I was never a massive Star Wars fan. I remember what, you weren't born when the first one came out. Well, that's right, or the yeah. second. <laughs> right, just to clarify. <laughs> but you were for the third. Yeah, it was about two. Only just. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you might not have been allowed in. Yeah. Uh, but what do you make of this? I mean, it's not, um, as, as one commentator said this week, it's, it's not so much about the box office, it's the spin-offs, it's the TV series, it's the, it's the, and it's the merchandise, which uh, George Lucas uh, famously hung on to, the rights to, first time round. Yeah. And it was an incredible deal for him, wasn't it? I mean, there's never going to be a deal like that again in cinema history. I mean, going back to the movies, uh, Star Wars will now have to compete with an incredibly competitive uh, range of films coming out. Blockbusters seem to be out every week almost. You know, More money seems to be spent on, on Hollywood um, films nowadays than ever before. And you know, the latest James Bond hit, Skyfall, it seems to be you know, the latest in, in that line. So it's, it's not an easy terrain to be com- competing in. But you know, as we alluded to, Disney won't be complacent with it. And they've got a little bit of credibility to claw back, given the fact that the last three films are so poorly received. I mean, uh, no doubt there'll be huge anticipation around the next one. Of course there will. But, you know, they've got to get it back on track. And and Lucas will still be involved, and it's sort of a a creative director role. Is that right? He'll still have, well, it remains to be seen exactly how much input he'll have, but he's not gone completely. No, he'll be in a buyout, so they'll they'll keep him on for... You know, to, to use his knowledge for three years and then as Disney does we'll, we'll move on to, to a new format but I do think that the fans will be disappointed that he has sold out and that might have an impact on future sales My thanks to Neil Henderson and Josh Halliday I'm delighted to say I've been joined by Media Guardian's Mark Sweeney Mark, welcome Thanks John now, uh, you won't know this, but we've just been talking about Disney and Lucasfilm, but that wasn't the only merger in town this week. There were two others to talk about. First up, Random House and Penguin, who were to merge to create the world's biggest book publisher. Random House 
owner Bertelsmann will own 53% of the new group, and Penguin's owner Pearson will have a 47% share. Dramatic stuff, it turns out, Mark, as it scabbard hopes that News Corporation had that it might bid for Penguin itself. This is true. They missed an ultimate opportunity to call it Randy Penguin, but that wouldn't really go down very well, so they've gone for Penguin Random House. Uh, Disappointing. It is, it is. What an opportunity. Twitter dubbed it, though. Twitter, Twitter nailed it. I think half of the story is, is really what didn't happen, and what didn't happen was Rupert Murdoch, and uh, who owns Collins through News Corp, uh, didn't get it, didn't, have, didn't come in with a bid until just before the ink was drying on the paper and so missed out. Uh, I think it's interesting, you could speculate that there's been so much going on with phone hacking and eyes have been elsewhere, there's been a lot of issues when there's been uh, AGMs about who should be on the board, and you could wonder whether or not uh, News Corp missed a, missed a real trick here, because to consolidate, you like to move first. So what's in it? What's in it for um, Bertelsmann and Pearson, what they're going to get out of this deal? Because it creates... Um well, the, the, the new Randy Penguin, as you say, will have combined sales of £2.5 billion and will publish nearly 30% of all books sold in the UK. Yeah, the 30% number is the key here. They reference several times the Universal EMI merger, which came under regulatory scrutiny in Europe and America. The key number for passing these things seems to be about 30%. So they're convinced that they won't have to divest anything, that they'll be okay, they'll, be, they'll create a global powerhouse. Authors and agents will benefit. Some of them might question that, but they have been claiming that in their own right, they are both big players now and no one's suffering. So why suffer when they're a bit bigger? The bear in the corner is Amazon. Amazon's massive, doing really, really big things in eBooks, And despite their size, Penguin Random House claims that they need to merge in order to keep up to pace. You've hinted at it there. I mean, the, the, the future of book publishing will be... Uh ever-increasing amount is going to be a digital and uh, e-books. I think Amazon sells 114, well, I, th- I say I think, I read this week that uh, Amazon sells 114 e-books for every 100 printed books. Uh, how's the book publishing industry coping with the digital challenge, say, you know, in, in comparison to, you know, how uh, newspapers or, or music is coping? They're actually doing a, a lot better, you would argue, than, than newspapers. Penguin, if, if I remember rightly off the top of my head, is, is, is somewhere like 10, 12 or so percent of their revenues in our e-books. Um, and that's come in great jumps and bounds. I think they might have doubled it year on year. Uh, but the, the thing is, you've got the saying was fear of Google. And there is probably a fear of Amazon to a sense. Uh, it's got uh, the fire, uh, the Kindle fire, and it's not called the fire for nothing. It's flying off the shelves. New, new Kindle fires came out recently. Um, it, it's just really sort of cornering a big market here, and, and they're worried. The digital revenues are not fast enough. They think, cut costs, we can throw more money into what we're doing technologically, and we'll be fine. And the third merger this week, we said there were three, is the creation of something called Local World, uh, which, Mark, is the, the brainchild of former Mirror Group boss David Montgomery. It is. He broke probably the biggest news uh, that's being discussed for many a year, probably since Northcliffe attempted to to be sold for one billion and, and didn't come off. It's now worth probably hundred, hundred or so million. And David Montgomery's come out as the the knight, the shining knight to save and start the long held consolidation of the regional newspaper industry. It's called Local World. See what he's done there. It's local, but world. He wants to bring it all together into a big entity and make a difference, uh, not disappear. There are question marks over what he's doing over over the business model. There's a lot of moving parts we're not sure where it's going yet the deal hasn't been done Uh, there are those that question uh, does it have the scale Um, does it need a trinity mirror and if it does because trinity's only committed to investing uh, um, money to take a stake not its newspapers if it does does that hit regulatory hurdles there's a, a lot of unknowns here but there's a lot of excitement 
So local world. So as you said there, it's, it's, it's going to combine uh, Northcliffe Media, which is the local media business of the Daily Mail and General Trust, and something called Yattenden, which is a family-owned media and property group, which includes titles like uh, the Cambridge Evening News, I think. So the idea is, well, he's bringing scale to the local newspaper market. That's what he wants to do, at least. It's true. It's it's actually Yattenden subsidiary, which is Iliff. Uh, they own a number of different things, including marinas and agriculture and all sorts. This is the newspaper division. It's about 30, 34 papers. So he's starting there. They're going to have stakes uh, to take it to about 50%. Chris Benodi's involved in there somewhere. Um, we're not sure how much Mon- Montgomery has or who else might be involved. But the key plan is you need consolidation. You've got to have size to survive. Uh, regional newspapers, woes are well-documented advertising circulation. Um, and he's hoping to kick it off but the question is it's still only going to be fourth biggest it's not going to be any bigger than it was by revenue when Northcliffe was by itself so whatever Monty's master plan is uh, we'll have to see if it works out and you talk about Monty's master plan Roy Greenslade Guardian columnist Roy Greenslade described him as a consistent cold-blooded cost cutter so, uh, and some of the commenters on, uh, on, on Roy's blog were, were not optimistic or it's fair to say there was a certain degree of sort of fear about what he's going to do but I mean Northcliffe that's that's turned itself around doesn't it it makes a profit now but uh, you know but there's been some um, you know not without pain in terms of titles being closed or, or merged well to be fair it's, it's always made a profit but it is about scale about five, six, seven years ago, uh, when, when we reached a high water mark, it was making 100 million or so in profits. It will be lucky to make a quarter of that this year. It, it has stabilised. They bought on from Metro Steve Auckland to run it. Uh, there has been some changes in frequency of some publications. Of course, there's some cost cutting. Uh, however, it, it stabilised and it actually put a, some, a period of growth on its profits, which we haven't seen since about 2009. So you could say that if you're ever going to get rid of it and shiny it up, it would be now. It's worth a fraction of what it was six or seven years ago, but they've done a reasonable job. It's as good a time as any for DMGT to try and offload it. Okay, well, we wait and see what happens to the local world. But we can't let you go, Mark, without uh, you've come here hot foot from the uh, B Sky B AGM today. And uh, James Murdoch is back 95% support, shareholder support. It seems that memory of phone hacking is very short with B-SkyB investors. They, uh, they voted overwhelmingly today to reappoint him as a director. Uh, there were a few of the loud vocal voices. There was no protesters outside. Uh, there was one man who referred to him as toxic if he remains on the board, but all in all, it was pretty low-key. Uh, the main issue seems to have been that uh, they didn't like him as chairman, but he stepped down as chairman in April, and so he, he came through with fly, flying colours, a, a very high uh, endorsement. Matter of fact, some of the other board members um, went through with, with less levels of approval, uh, but certainly didn't have anything running around them like phone hacking has with James, which is, it's dogged him. Ofcom just a month ago criticised him heavily, but that didn't seem to sway, sway the voting at all. And how were Sky's results? Sky's results, third quarter in nine months, they were good. It was expected to be a pretty average set of results because the Olympics had eyeballs elsewhere. However, they did do quite well. They beat uh, expectations on on revenue. They actually passed TalkTalk to become the third largest broadband supplier in the UK. They're knocking on the door of Virgin, so they've done a great job there. And they spent, uh, what, tell us, uh, they spent some money um, subsidising the BBC's uh, Olympic channel. Tell us about that. Yeah, buried, buried in a bit of a footnote, uh, the, the Olympics was only a couple of weeks long. I think Sky had 24 standard definition channels and 24 high definition, which they supplied uh, to their viewers in a deal with the Beeb. And they revealed in their results this morning that it cost them three million to do so. So it's, it wasn't a cheap uh, effort. But I mean, good for them. They didn't need to offer anything. OK, Mark, thanks very much.
I'm joined for the second part of the show by Sam Delaney, writer and broadcaster, and delighted to say making a Media Talk debut, I think, unless I'm speaking out of turn, is the uh, deputy editor of The Guardian's Guide, that is Rebecca Nicholson. Now, Vicky Frost is on holiday this week, uh, hence uh, Rebecca's stellar appearance. Rebecca, we're, we're going to talk small screen now, uh, and where do you want to start? Uh, let's start with Homeland, although oh, goody, I'm calling goody. it Stella before I've even started is, is optimistic. <laughs> no pressure. Uh, Homeland continues. Uh, we've had four episodes of it now. And it's gone from a kind of place of incredible silliness and actually disappointment, uh, even if you're a, f- a fanatic like I am. Peaking with that car wash scene. Maybe that's the wrong choice of word. Um, peaking with the car wash scene. It, it brought it back last week. Carrie, it did. Carrie confronted Brody. How does it move on from here? Where do we go? What happens next? And I think that's when it, it's best, is when it's kind of throwing these big shockers out of, at you. And they're believable. We believe that she's so reckless that she will ruin everything because she suspects him. She suspects he suspects her with just a look. Sam, uh, what have you made of the second series so far? Really good. Much more exciting than the first, which sort of burnt quite slowly for a while in the middle, didn't it? And uh, yeah, it's, it's twisting constantly. So each week there's a genuine really big cliffhanger. I've got my theories on how it's going to progress from here in that it's, it's clear. I've always thought that Brody was very soft. As far as Muslim fundamentalists go, he seems slightly equivocal and like, you know, not really sure where he stands on whose side he's on, which makes it more preposterous, <laughs> the idea that he came very close to blowing up the White House with a vest, right? Because you sort of think he's never that convinced. Whenever they talk to him about being uh, like a terrorist, he's sort of really kind of anti. He's like, well, why do you want me to do these things? I'm an American. This is awful. All right, I'll do it. So I think he'd be very easy to turn. If it, I mean, I, I think I would be able to turn him quite easily. And then you turn him. But then because it'd be easy to turn back the other way as well. So what they'll do in this series is they'll turn him and he'll go undercover still amongst uh, Abu Nazir's mob. But then they'll find out and in the following series they can turn him back again and so it can go on. And that's why this franchise has such legs is that he can continue to be turned almost constantly back and forth. So it's, it's, is it turning into 24 a bit, Rebecca, which I kind of don't mind, but I kind of, you know, I wished it to be a bit more kind of smarter than that. There, Maybe it isn't. There's a moment on Sunday, which I, I won't give anything away, but Dana, the daughter who's getting a lot more screen time this series, has a, a Kim Bauer moment. And Ooh. so I do, yeah, I mean, this isn't a good <laughs> oh, thing. No. So I do, uh, I do worry the, the that thing about it's going a bit 24. The thing about Homeland is, right, I, you know, is that basically it's really stupid. It's a really stupid programme that thinks it's a smart programme, but it's not. It is like 24. It's not a smart programme. But it's really compelling because the plot twists are just really fantastically exciting. Claire Danes' performance is fantastic. Every other performance by a lead character is awful, like really bad. Lewis. Yeah, Damien Lewis is terrible. Ooh, the, controversial. Wife, the wife is absolutely the she worst character <laughs> played by the worst actress yeah. in, in recent times anywhere on television. And it's full of British actors. Yeah, the British guy who plays the, the head of the CIA is absurdly yep. bad. Everyone's rubbish in it. It's a rubbish... And, and the portrayal of Muslims in it is like is more extremely absurd than it is in Team America. It's like Team America, right? <laughs> it is exactly like Durka Durka in Team America. And yet, and yet, it's brilliantly compelling and you have to watch it every single week. But it is not smart, Sally. It's just stupid, isn't it? But that's probably what makes it. it brilliant. So I think everyone thinks it's, it's smart. They've got jazz and Obama's yeah. in the opening credits. Exactly. So it's, it's exactly. The opening credits go a long way to establishing your credentials as clever telly. Yeah. After that... <laughs> You could just be, you know, you you're basically could be dynasty. But as long as you've <laughs> had some fancy, slightly arty opening credits, people will fall for it. You're right. 
And I particularly like the grizzle, the vet, uh, every time. Not not veterinarian, but a vet uh, who sort of... Frackin' oh. Brody. He's exactly like the vet in The Simpsons, the guy with one arm, <laughs> isn't he? <laughs> really cynical and full of you weren't there, man. <laughs> well, more Homeland next week, uh, no doubt, when we would decide that it's uh, gone silly again. Uh, but uh, also, Rebecca, this week, uh, what have we got coming up? American Horror Story. American Horror Story. This uh, started on Monday at 10pm, ah, Halloween yeah. week. It felt very timely. Uh, this is Ryan Murphy, who was the showrunner for uh, Nip Tuck for a teen show called Popular that I still maintain was very good. Nobody watched it, but it was ahead of its time. And for Glee, most famously. And he's notorious for starting shows with an original premise and, and very well and, and doing a kind of very strong first season and then losing the plot entirely. I mean, literally and and figuratively, some of the things that have happened in Glee over the second series and the third series were just completely mad. I mean, it made no sense. It was really badly written. It was kind of badly paced. Everything went wrong. I saw the first series of American Horror Story and thought it was just fun because it's a horror story. It's a ghost story. So you really can do whatever you want. And actually, this seems to suit his style of television making very well. This is the sequel to that, and I think you can call it a sequel in that kind of movie sense because most of the main cast were killed off in the first series. This is a different story in a different time, using the same actors to play different characters. Uh, Jessica Lang is in it as a an evil nun running an insane asylum in 1964, wow. and it just it gets. I've seen the first two episodes. As I said, the first one was on Monday. And it's going on on Monday nights on FX, so it's not going to have a huge audience. But it's just a brilliant show. It's brilliantly done. And this series is better, I think, so far, which is very unlike Ryan Murphy. And how gory is it out of ten? It's incredibly gory. And actually very frightening. I'm not easily scared, but it's, yeah. Sam, were you a Nip Tuck man? Are you an uh, American Horror Story man? Neither, I'm afraid. What? Can't contribute. Yeah, can't, sorry. What? Glee. Glee. Oh, I watched a little bit of Glee. Yeah, I sort of had to when it started. Yeah, and um, <laughs> you had to for professional purposes. Yeah, I did actually. And then, and then when that obligation ceased, so did my watching of Glee. Okay. So yeah, sorry, I can't contribute in any valuable way. Well, maybe you'll be a viewer <laughs> of Channel 4's Secret State, which I'm very excited about because it's got the great Gabriel Byrne in it. Well, this starts next week on Channel 4, and it's one of those British dramas that you know instantly is a big British drama, you know, capital letters. It's kind of shot with that grey filter that everything is. It's a big conspiracy uh, thriller. Gina McKee's in it, which I always think is a sign of, you know, determined quality television. She's everywhere, but in a good way. She is everywhere, but in a good way. I think she's wonderful. The thing about Secret State is that we have a lot of shows that are dealing with a similar thing, which is a big conspiracy, uh, government corruption, all that kind of stuff. And this is a lot, this is, as we were saying about Homeland, this is very, very silly, but it thinks that it's really smart television. Uh, There's a lot of CGI, lots of preposterous things happen. It's all a bit daft, but it thinks that it's saying something kind of state of play-ish about about the era that we live in. it's fine. I think two problems with it. No, it's not fine. It's fun. It's fun. It's just not as clever as it thinks it is. But the two problems are that the big firm that's responsible for the corruption is called Petrofex, petrochemical company. I can't stop thinking about Father Ted when I'm reading the name. You know, it's like an evil, those Petrofex. Oh, I see, I see, yes. yes. <laughs> Which yeah, means it slightly, yeah, Petrofex. Um, and it looks very similar to the episode of Black Mirror that involved the Prime Minister being blackmailed into sexual acts with a pig. Oh, yeah, but there's no and So I keep thinking about that too. So all these things are kind of pulling me in different directions. It's very enjoyable. 
kind of feels like he's got a touch of defence of the realm about it as well, uh, which uh, Gabriel Byrne was also in. But I uh, see from your, you know, your raised eyebrows, maybe you weren't uh, no, overly familiar it. with that 1985 uh, BAFTA probably winning film. <laughs> um, uh, OK, well, we look forward to that. That's on Channel 4. Is that next week? Next Wednesday. Next Wednesday. And um, Sam, you didn't see uh, Nip Tuck. Uh, you saw a bit of Glee, but you haven't seen American Horror Story. But uh, give us one thing on your, uh, on your PVR right now. Uh, what have I been watching a lot of? Um, well, I've been watch- I tell you what I've been watching a lot of is the Sky 007 channel. Have you seen this channel? It's devoted to 007. So when there's nothing on, I will by default go and choose an obscure James Bond film to watch. So I've been watching a lot of it back to back. And it's really made me sort of uh, just really not like James Bond. I keep watching it, but I find James Bond so annoying. He's such an idiot, isn't he? Did you did you end up watching, uh, you know, Honor Majesty's yeah, Secret Service I watched, for the first time? Or, I watched Honor yeah. Majesty's Secret Service and the Timothy Dalton ones. I really wanted to delve into the kind of the B sides, if you will, of the <laughs> of the James Bond output. And uh, yeah, in it, at every turn, James Bond's ridiculous. In fact, he's at his least ridiculous when Roger Moore plays him because at least Roger Moore acknowledges the ridiculousness of James Bond and the stupid way of which he conducts himself. Um, but the more serious ones, like Timothy Dalton and Daniel Craig, who are the ones who go, I'm taking Bond back to the uh, to its roots, to how Ian Fleming first wanted him to be and portrayed him as in his stupid books that he wrote. That's the when they get really embarrassing, because to do all those silly things like, you know, poncing into a bar and ordering a flaming martini and then getting fussy about the way it's mixed and, and all the other absurd things he does with, and the way he treats women and all the rest of it, but doing it with a really serious expression on your face. Is just box like, office gold. It's beyond embarrassing, and uh, I say all this having literally Alan Partridge style watched like back to back Bond for the last couple of weeks. But I feel that I I hate him in an authoritative way now. Well, that's good to know. It's mm. good to know. And talking about being very authoritative, it's time for the Media Monkey Quiz, uh, which I know you're both looking forward to. Uh, five questions, uh, fingers on the buzzers, but we've forgotten to bring them in. And uh, number one, who is hoping to make a splash with a new ITV reality show? Oh no, dear. Tom Daly. He's, he's doing a, really. He's, he's fronting a, um, a, a, a diving show. It is celebrity dive. You've got it exactly. I right. had that is idea years ITV? ago, but not in the sense I bet it is on ITV. <laughs> is it ITV one or two though? Uh, ITV one. Is it really weekend primetime slot? It's the new celebrity wrestling. They're they're hoping not. It's the new wow. take me out. Uh, and I'd forgotten. Imagine celebrity if it's Sharpay. the take me out format in water. <laughs> <laughs> we can we can only hope. <laughs> Right, so I think that's probably nil-nil so far. Question number two, that was the easy one. Question number two, uh, the reviewer for which newspaper praised the new James Bond Skyfall film as uh, for its adrenaline-pumping action, amazing, oh, hyper-realistic chases. You can interrupt me any time if you like. The uh, Vatican. Sam. The well, Vatican's newspaper. Thank you very much. And do you know the name of that newspaper? Uh, the Vatican Daily Star. That's exactly right. Yeah, I'm amused so. by this because I think the new James Bond film is the campus Bond film I've ever seen. Really? So, I haven't yeah. seen it. Well, it went down well with the Pope, apparently, or certainly uh, the Pope's newspaper. Uh, in the same issue, it celebrated the 500th anniversary of the Sistine Chapel. So, uh, a Catholic read. It's got page Ba-boom. three in it as well. Uh, it has a page it, three. It does have a page three. Right. Lovely, yeah. Good. Uh, question <laughs> on, on that number, question number three. Who scored a double over the X Factor at the weekend? Was it Strictly? Yep. Good one, Rebecca. Yep. Thanks. Yeah, <laughs> I mean yeah. that was a look. That was the easy. Yeah, well, is that in terms of ratings? It is indeed. Yeah, yeah. you didn't need to carry on, but uh, okay. well done. Uh, so one point each. Yeah, it uh, beat the X Factor on Saturday and on Sunday. It beats which, it. I thought it be- beats it every weekend, doesn't it? It does beat it on Saturdays, but Sunday's X Factor has the whip oh, hand until has, yeah, last right. week. Uh, question number four. So it's one each. It's very exciting. Slightly convoluted question. What do broadcasters want you to see before 9pm that they can Watershed currently? Watershed uh, content. Oh, he's in. He's in. Hey, <laughs> king of the interruption. Yeah. 
Uh, well, yes. you did invite me to. No, I did. I don't no. mean to be rude, but Please I, do. I, I am quite competitive. Don't take that as criticism. Uh, yes, uh, they want you to... Uh, shall I go on and explain this, or is yeah, it pretty obvious? Oh, please, thanks. <laughs> yes, they want pin protection systems to cover all shows on cable and satellite channels, not just premium film subscription channels and pay-per-view. So you could watch Mad Dogs at any time of the day. Got to be a good thing? Yeah. Yeah, okay, so question number five. Uh, who is Donald Duck's fourth nephew? This is a sort of slightly random Star Wars-related uh, Lucasfilm takeover question. Is it Tom Daly? It's not. It's it's Chewy, so it's ah, Huey, Dewey, Louie, and Chewy, and Chewy, Chewbacca. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, good to end on a high note. Uh, so that was the quiz. I think. I think Sam took that two one. I think. But, I, think uh, did. I think so. Well, congratulations. Do I get anything? Well, it's a bit like the BBC competitions used to be. You might yeah. do, but I might have given it to a relative. Ah, okay. That's it for this week. My thanks to all our guests. That is from the top. Neil Henderson, Josh Halliday, Sam Delaney, Mark Sweeney, and Rebecca Nicholson. You can leave your comments on today's show on our Facebook wall or our blog. Or you can tweet me at johnplunkett149. Media Talk is produced by Mr Matt Hill. My name is John Plunkett. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio. Guardian Holiday Offers is pleased to bring you a great selection of worldwide trips from our trusted partners. From cultural tours and adventure holidays to river cruises and cottage breaks, we have something for everyone. To find your perfect break, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash travel with us. That's guardian.co.uk forward slash travel with us.